Let me encourage you to turn again to Luke 24. We've made our way almost to the end, very end of the book. Um, and we'll come this morning in a moment and read verses 13 through 35. Um, but while you're turning there, let me remind you that uh, last Sunday in Luke 24, 1 through 12, we saw that several of Jesus' female followers had come to his tomb early on that first Easter Sunday morning, only to be astonished at finding the tomb empty. And where was Jesus? Well, according to the two angels who were sitting there, he had risen. And at that startling announcement, these women now rushed back into the city in verse 9 and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Jesus is alive, they must have said. We saw the empty tomb and there were two angels there. You've just got to come and see. But what sort of response did these ladies receive? Well, you may remember from verse 11 that most of Jesus' disciples thought that these reports were simply nonsense. That's the word that's used there. They thought that these women were full of nonsense. They thought these women had gone daft. And so they went on, these disciples, believing that Jesus was still dead and that their hopes had largely been dashed. And we find proof of the fact that they thought that way as we read into verses 13 through 35. And I just want you to see that, to see the doubt and the unbelief of Jesus' disciples as we go forward now, beginning in verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up at that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Father, as we... Open your word this morning. We 
simply pray for your help. God, we pray that your spirit would come and walk with us the way Jesus walked with these men that day and explain to us the things concerning your son in this scripture and in all the scriptures. So come and walk with us, speak with us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that's so compelling and really in many ways disheartening about the resurrection accounts that the gospel writers record for us is, as we've been saying, how slow of heart his disciples were to believe in the resurrection. You'll recall, remember from Luke 24, verse 1, that even those faithful and courageous women who went to the tomb early on Sunday morning went there initially not expecting to find that Jesus had risen, but to perfume his dead body and to see his body for one final time. They went there for a funeral, not a resurrection. And even when they got there and the tomb was empty and they didn't find what they had expected, they were perplexed, we see in verse 4, because they had fully anticipated seeing a sealed tomb and a dead body and nothing more. They were slow of heart to believe in the resurrection. And then, of course, not only were the women slow of heart, but even more so the male followers of Jesus, as we see in this passage this morning. They thought these women were crazy, as we read in verse 11. And now, as we began reading in verse 13, we see these men beginning just to go about their daily business and back to their normal lives as though the dream had really ended. Here these two men were, Cleopas and another one who's not named, not studying the scriptures on that Sunday morning to see if there might been, have been some part of the prophecies that they'd overlooked, not racking their brains to remember if Jesus said anything about an empty tomb or a resurrection, not walking to the graveside to see if these women's reports were true, but instead we find them walking out of the great city, their heads hanging low, verse 17, their voices hushed, and really their tails between their legs. And not only do we see their unbelief and their hopelessness in their posture, as they walk along the road, but we can also hear their unbelief. We can hear their sadness, their lack of faith in their words as well. Because when Jesus came up to them, unrecognized of course, and began asking them what was bothering them, their words told the story, didn't they? In verse 19, they referred to Jesus not as the Savior, not as the Messiah, but simply as a prophet. Now yes, they said he was a mighty prophet, but still just a prophet. And I know they had hoped that he would be more than a prophet, verse 21. But they tell us in verse 20 that their hopes had been dashed. It had been three days since all these things happened in verse 21. And so surely by this time in their minds, any glimmer of hope had now vanished and gone by the boards. The man we thought was the Savior is dead and hope is lost. That's what they were saying to one another and to their newfound traveling companion as they made their way out of the city of Jerusalem and onto the village of Emmaus. And of course, Jesus, still unrecognized by them, sternly and properly rebuked them in verse 25, didn't he? He called them foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. And he was right, wasn't he? These men were foolish and they were slow of heart, just like the women had been earlier that morning. And they were completely without excuse for their foolishness and their slowness of heart. Let me show you that just from this passage. First of all, as Jesus said to them in verse 25, the prophets themselves had predicted this remarkable turn of events, hadn't they? One thinks especially of Isaiah 53, which as we know famously and graphically prophesies the death of the Messiah, but which also makes plain that there would be a resurrection as well. 
Because Isaiah tells us that this bruised, battered, suffering servant, Isaiah 53.10, will see his offspring and will prolong his days. In other words, Isaiah says your Messiah is going to die. He's going to be the bloody sacrifice for your sins, but he's not going to stay dead. No, no. He's going to prolong his days. He's going to rise from the dead. And what Jesus is saying is these men should have known Isaiah 53. That's what he's rebuking them for in verse 25, isn't he? They should have known what the prophets had spoken and believed it. But they were foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. They were also slow of heart to believe what Jesus himself had spoken before his death. The gospel writers record four different occasions on which Jesus prophesied his death and his resurrection at one and the same time to his followers. And on all four of those occasions, or actually on three of those four occasions, he told them that this great reversal of fortunes, the resurrection, would happen on the third day. And yet, here these men were on the third day, and they had completely forgotten what Jesus had said. And not only that, but they had also discounted what the women had said earlier that morning when they ran back into the city with news of the empty tomb and the dazzling angels and so on. Now, these men should have put two and two together, shouldn't they? The prophets had prophesied that the Messiah would rise from the dead. Jesus himself had prophesied it as well, even pinpointing the specific day on which they could expect it. And now here they were on that exact day, the third day, hearing reports from women that they knew were credible that the tomb was empty and that angels had come and announced that Christ is risen, and these men still didn't believe. Still they were walking out of the city and away from the tomb and away from all the evidence, looking sad, verse 17. And so I say no wonder that Jesus calls them foolish men and slow of heart to believe. But before we're too hard on them, let's take a long, hard look in the mirror. How long did it take for some of us to believe? How many times did someone come to some of you with the truth and with a credible personal testimony to support their words before you finally repented and believed? Before you actually began living as though Jesus is really alive and king of the universe? How long did it take some of us? Some of us were very slow of heart to believe, too, weren't we? Some of us may still be slow of heart this morning. Some of you may be sitting here even today slow of heart. Maybe you were here last week and you heard compelling evidence that what Luke records here in Luke chapter 24 is reliable history and that the only logical conclusion that we can come to is that this Jesus of Nazareth really did rise from the dead and he's alive. You know that and yet some of you perhaps haven't bowed the knee to him even yet. You haven't repented of your sins. You haven't cried out to him for, to forgive you. And so I urge you even now to do that. Before I even finish this sermon, I urge you to be slow of heart no longer. If you're here without Christ this morning, don't be slow of heart for one minute longer. I pray that Jesus will make himself known to you as he did for these men beginning in verse 27. What a foolish thing to have all the evidence and not to believe. To read of Christ's death and resurrection prophesied in the scripture 700 years in advance and not to believe. To have the credible reports of numerous eyewitnesses and not to believe. For some of you to have the Holy Spirit himself burning within your heart telling you that it's all true and yet not to have bowed your knee to Jesus and to have submitted your life to him as king. Oh foolish men and slow of heart to believe, Jesus said to these men. 
And I just plead with all of you to be certain before you even walk out of these doors this morning that he will never, ever need to say that to you. I plead with you to bow your knee to the risen king now, today, to give glory to God today, to believe in this Jesus today, to give your life to him today. And let me say this as well. Even those of us who have bowed the knee and who have believed on Christ still find ourselves many times foolish men and foolish women and slow of heart to believe. Isn't that true? Now, we may not, many of us, doubt that Jesus really is alive and that he really did die for our sins and that he really does promise us eternal life, but many of us do doubt oftentimes that he'll enable us to pay the electric bill or that he really will help us through that awkward conversation. Some of us doubt that if we'll simply give to God our tithes and offerings, he'll make our ends meet. Some of us doubt all too often that Jesus really will answer our prayers for those unbelieving friends and family members. Some of us doubt his reliability, his ability to really revive us again. In other words, to bring thousands of people in our city to a real living relationship with Christ and to change the entire face of our culture and our schools and our workplaces and our neighborhoods and so on. We pray for these things, but we don't really expect it to happen. We find ourselves doubting. And we find ourselves, some of us, doubting all sorts of other things that God has promised us in his word. We're foolish men and slow of heart to believe many times. We pray, as someone said on Wednesday night, for things that seem feasible to us rather than for things that we know would be impossible without God. And so we're foolish men and women so many times, aren't we? We're slow of heart. And what we should do with verse 25 today is accept it as a kind-hearted rebuke, not just for Cleopas and his friend, but for us as well. We should, as Jesus said elsewhere, stop doubting and believe. In fact, let me just ask you if there's some specific area in your life in which you know this morning that you need to stop doubting and believe. Now, I'm not asking if you ought to be believing God for a new Jaguar or for a pay raise. God never promises those kinds of things in Scripture. But he does promise a great many things, doesn't he, to those who will believe and ask. But is there some area in your life in which you've stopped asking because you've stopped believing? Is there some area where worry has replaced faith? And if there is, let me just ask you this. Don't you think that if Jesus could literally rise from the dead, that he can do all sorts of other impossible things as well? Surely he can. So may God give us the strength this morning to be slow of heart no longer. That's the first thing to notice in these passages, that these disciples, like so many disciples since them, were slow of heart to believe. They shouldn't have been, but they were. But it wasn't long until their slow hearts turned into burning hearts. Yes, these men were at one point disappointed, doubting, sad disciples, but everything changed very rapidly once Jesus began speaking to them in verse 25. Their hearts burned as Jesus spoke, and their eyes were opened as Jesus spoke, and their minds were changed as Jesus spoke, and they were no longer doubting but fully assured in their faith. And that's a wonderful thing. I hope that you've experienced something of this same thing yourself. If you haven't, I hope that you will. Feel your heart burn and your mind open and your eyes open and things finally to make sense so that you take hold of Jesus and believe. And in order to help us along and to point the way, let me point out a few things 
about this encounter that these men had with Jesus. First, let me just point out that it's common for Bible readers to ask, why didn't these men identify Jesus right away? Evidently, they were his followers. They had seen him. They knew what he looked like. So why didn't they recognize him right off the bat? Why was it that they recognized Jesus only when he broke bread with them in verses 30 through 31? Well, the simple answer is apparently they didn't recognize Jesus in verse 16 because he didn't yet want them to recognize him. That's the significance of the phrase, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him, verse 16. In other words, it wasn't that Jesus had a cloak pulled over his face and that his cloak prevented them from recognizing him because they couldn't see his face, nor is there any other natural explanation. We're simply told their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And who is it, we're asked in Exodus 4, that makes men blind or seeing or deaf or mute? Is it not the Lord? Therefore, I conclude that when we read that these men were temporarily prevented from recognizing, from seeing Jesus, that God was behind it. We're not told why exactly, but it's safe to conclude that at this juncture, God simply did not want them just yet to identify Jesus. But then the question becomes, as we read these verses, well, how did they eventually recognize him? Was it that the way Jesus broke the bread gave him away that Jesus had a certain way of doing it and they'd seen him do it before and now they recognize this must be Jesus or was it then he would when he put his hands on the table to break the bread they saw the nail prints in his hands and had an aha moment and recognized him through that well maybe it was a little bit of both but the root answer I want you to see lies even deeper than just what these men saw as Jesus broke the bread with their physical eyes the language of verse 31 makes this really clear Because it doesn't just say that they recognize Jesus or that they themselves opened their eyes. It says that their eyes were opened. And that phrase, were opened, is a passive verb. And what that means is that the eyes weren't doing the action themselves when they opened, but rather that the eyes were being acted upon from outside themselves. Something was happening to the eyes. That's the significance of the phrase, were opened. Namely, the eyes from some outside source, were being opened for these men. In other words, something besides the eyelids and the brains and the willpowers of these two men opened their eyes for them. Their eyes were opened by something or someone else. And that's the same kind of language we saw in verse 16 regarding the closure of these men's eyes, isn't it? In verse 16, something outside themselves, namely God, prevented them from seeing. And now in verse 31, something outside themselves opens their eyes and enables them to see and it's only logical to do so if God is the one who makes man blind or seeing and if God is the one who closed their eyes in verse 16 then he must have been the one who opened their eyes in verse 31 and I realize that we're told that their eyes were opened while Jesus broke the bread and partially because he broke the bread in verse 35 but it was God ultimately who opened them it was God who finally enabled them to see clearly and I take the time to point that out simply because the opening of these men's physical eyes is an exact parallel to what must happen anytime anyone's spiritual eyes are open to recognize Jesus as well. It's not simply that we open our eyes to him, though we must 
open our eyes. But beneath that and foundational to it is the fact that God must open our eyes before we can open them ourselves. And yes, he uses means, just like the means that Jesus used to show himself to the disciples here in verses 30 through 31. But the means that God uses are simply a tool in the hand of God who wields the tool and who does the opening. He has to give us eyes to see in order that we may stop doubting and believe. That's what the Bible often calls being born again. Until we're born again, Jesus says in John 3, we can't even see the kingdom of heaven. But once we're born again, once our spiritual eyes are open, we recognize Jesus for who it is. And it depends on the kind, good intervention of God. It depends on his mercy to enable us to see. If your spiritual blindness has been taken away and you have recognized Jesus and entrusted your life to him, it's not because you just woke up one day and decided that you were going to be able to see. But that God opened your eyes and enabled you to see. And seeing you believed and you were justified by that faith. But it all began with God who allowed you to see in the first place. And this is a wonderful parallel to it in the physical sense in this passage. But now also, still sort of in this middle section of the sermon, I want you to notice that two miracles took place in these verses, not just one. Two miracles. We've been talking about one. On the one hand, these men were enabled to see physically. They were enabled to recognize Jesus finally with the eyes of their flesh in verses 30 through 31. But even before that, it would seem that Jesus was opening the eyes of their hearts as well, and that's another miracle. Because don't they tell us in verse 32 that even before Jesus broke the bread, even before their physical eyes were open, that the Lord was working in their hearts? He was doing for them what we've just been saying we need him to do for us. Even before they recognized Jesus physically standing before them, their hearts burned in verse 32. Even before their physical eyes were opened to identify Jesus by sight, the eyes of their hearts were beginning to be opened to recognize and embrace Jesus by faith. And I just want to spend a few minutes considering Jesus' strategy for making that happen. How did Jesus go about not just opening these men's physical eyes, but opening the eyes of their hearts to believe? Well, yes, as we were just saying, it's, it's a God-sent miracle that they believed, that their spiritual eyes were open, just as it is with each of us. But as we said, God uses means to do this. God has strategies for opening the eyes of people's hearts and causing their hearts to burn with faith in his son. And that's what I want to consider for a moment or two. What the strategy was that Jesus used to help these men spiritually come alive and see. Jesus understood that these two men were blind, not just blind to his identity on the road, but also blind to the very truths that would have set them free and give them hope whether they ever saw Jesus face to face or not, they were blind to the reality of the resurrection and to the hope of the gospel. How did Jesus go about helping them see? He didn't go right away, I want you to notice, to showing them his hands and his feet. He could have done that. He could have made his identity known to them right off, couldn't he? could have showed his hands, showed his feet, and they would have known that it was all true and that Jesus really is the risen king and the Messiah and the Savior of the world. Jesus could have physically shown himself to these men right off the top. But that's not what he did. Instead of doing the easy thing and the obvious thing, he spent the whole seven miles of that journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus walking them through the Bible. I'll say that again. When Jesus 
wanted to bring men from doubt to faith, he did not immediately show them his scars, but he showed them the scriptures that speak about the scars. And their hearts burned as he did it, we're told in verse 33. Their hearts knew he was right even before their eyes knew who he was. Their hearts knew he was right about the Messiah before their eyes recognized that he was standing there with them. And I find this incredibly instructive that Jesus went to the Bible, first of all, in his strategy for bringing people from doubt to faith. He could have worked a miracle. He could have shown his hands and feet. He could have done any number of other miraculous things to prove to them that he was alive and that he is the Savior of the world. But instead of doing any of those things, he went to the Old Testament. And he proved the resurrection to them from there. And it's reminiscent of what Jesus said in Luke 16, isn't it? In Luke 16, Jesus asserted that if people will not listen to the law and the prophets, if people will not repent of their sins and turn to God at the reading and preaching of the Bible, then Jesus said they will not believe, quote, even if someone rises from the dead. And he followed his own counsel here in Luke 24. He began with the law and the prophets with the scriptures. He began with Moses, verse 27, and worked his way through the entire Old Testament, showing these men that the events of the last three days had been exactly as the scriptures had said they would be. And I find that utterly amazing. Jesus was standing there as physical, living proof of the resurrection and of his claims to be king of kings. But when turning someone from darkness to light and from blindness to sight and from a doubting heart to a burning heart, Jesus' strategy was to begin with the scriptures. Now that's not to discount the importance of the resurrection itself. As we said last week, the resurrection miracle is essential to our faith. Without it, there's no Christianity. So I'm not trying to discount the importance of the resurrection by emphasizing the need for the scriptures. What I'm doing, and I want you to hear this well, is I'm simply pointing out that we ought to believe in the resurrection, Jesus says in verse 25, because the scriptures teach it. Not because we ever actually have the opportunity with our own two eyes to see the nail prints in Jesus' hands. Yes, Jesus finally did show these men his miraculous body as an affirmation of the teachings of the Bible. But he showed them the Bible first. Because whether they or we ever get to see Jesus risen in the flesh in this life, we ought to believe, verse 25 because the prophets have already spoken. That's the point of verse 25, really. These men didn't necessarily need to see Jesus' scars in order to believe because they already had Jesus' scriptures. And that, Jesus says, ought to have been enough to cause them to stop doubting and believe. And here's where the rubber meets the road on these issues for us. God sometimes grants miracles in order to strengthen our faith and in order to affirm that he and his word can be trusted. But if we are waiting for God to give us a sign from heaven before we obey his already revealed truth, if we're waiting to see a miracle or lightning strike before we'll repent of our sins and believe on Jesus or obey some portion of the Bible, then Jesus would call us foolish and slow of heart. He would take us to verse 25 and he would say, listen, you ought to have already believed because you have the scriptures. And then he demonstrates that that's what he would do in verse 27. We ought to walk by faith in the word of God and not merely by sight of some sign or miracle. And these men listened to Jesus expounding the scriptures. And their hearts burned 
within them. It's amazing. And that's the third thing I want you to notice in this middle portion of the sermon. We thought about the slowness of their hearts. Now we're thinking about the, the burning in their hearts. And I want you just to notice that burning specifically. And I want to ask you really if your heart ever burns when you hear Christ preached from the scriptures. Does it? Do you ever feel that your whole soul is simply captivated by a passage of scripture as it's read or as you read it yourself or as it's, as it's expounded from the pulpit? Do you ever sit in these pews and feel absolute elation and or unquenchable conviction well up inside of your soul? These men's hearts burned within them as they heard Christ preach from the Old Testament. And if things are right in the pulpit and in the pew, this ought to be sometimes the experience of every true Christian. Our hearts ought often to burn and to melt at the preachings of preaching of Christ, sometimes to one degree, sometimes to another. But there ought to be something more happening when this book is open than merely the passing along of information. Our hearts sometimes ought to burn. And to the extent that they don't, we ought to be fervent in prayer, both for those in the pulpit and for those in the pews, that the Spirit of Christ might come and walk with us just as the flesh of Christ came and walked with Cleopas and his companion that day on the road to Emmaus. As the hymn writer William Cooper said, Oh, for a closer walk with God. Oh, for burning hearts, both in the pulpit and the pew. Oh, that Christ might come near to his people again and explain to us the things concerning himself in the scriptures so that our hearts would burn with zeal for him. So I say again, these two followers of Jesus had slow hearts, but they were marvelously changed so that soon they had burning hearts. And it happened, as we've been saying, and as verse 27 explains, as Jesus took them to the heart of the Scriptures. The heart of the Scriptures, verse 27. Luke 24, 27 definitely has to be one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there for that road trip? I know it sounds cliche. I know that I'm saying basically what preachers are supposed to say when they read Luke 24, 27. But honestly, wouldn't you have loved to have been there? What a wonderful two or so hours that must have been as Jesus walked these men who still didn't recognize who was walking beside them. As he walked these men through the entire Old Testament and pointed out how it's really all about him. No wonder their hearts burned. No wonder they went back to the other disciples thrilled beyond belief. Because not only had they seen Jesus face to face, but they had been given a key to understanding the Bible so that for the rest of their lives, they could continue to come face to face with him in the books of Genesis and Judges and Obadiah and Habakkuk and so on. Jesus showed these men that he is the heart of the scriptures, even when the scriptures were written hundreds of years before his birth. Perhaps Jesus took these men all the way back to Genesis 3 where God slew an animal so that Adam and Eve's shame might be covered over. And perhaps he asked them, doesn't that sound like what you just saw three days ago on the cross? And then maybe he continued on showing them the ram that died in Isaac's place in Genesis 22 and the Passover lamb whose blood protected the Israelites from death in the book of Exodus and the lamb in the book of Leviticus upon whose head all the sins of all the people would be confessed on the day of atonement so that when that lamb was slain, their sins might be carried away and forgiven. 
Perhaps I say he showed them all of these slain animals and asked them if any of it sounded familiar. And surely their hearts must have already begun to burn at seeing the crucifixion of their master so clearly depicted in the sacrifices of the Old Testament. But then perhaps Jesus went on from Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus to the book of Numbers, maybe chapter 21, and reminded them of the bronze serpent hung up on the pole such that the people, if they would look to it hanging there, would be healed of the poisonous snake bites that God has sent as punishment for their sins. And perhaps he asked them again if they'd seen anything like that in recent days. Maybe he carried them on to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses told the people that a prophet would be coming who would be just like himself. And then maybe he turned to these men and asked them if they hadn't noticed that there was never a prophet quite like Jesus. And if just maybe he was the fulfillment of Moses' words. And then maybe he also pointed out how key Old Testament leaders so often seem to have lives and work that so clearly foreshadow Jesus as to make it obvious that God sent them to help his people so that someday down the road his people would recognize the great and final leader, namely the Messiah. Perhaps along these lines he pointed out to them that the name Jesus translated back into the Hebrew is actually Joshua. And maybe he asked them if they thought there was any significance in the book of Joshua to a man with the same Hebrew name as their master leading God's people out of the wilderness and into the promised land. Or maybe he went to the book of Judges and reminded them of Samson, a miracle baby who grew up and single-handedly rescued God's people from their enemies and finally willingly died doing so. Doesn't that sound familiar, perhaps he said? And then maybe he also pointed out the similarities between Boaz, the kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth, and Jesus, who came from the same hometown as Boaz, Bethlehem, and who, just like Boaz, welcomed strangers and promised to provide their every need. And surely Jesus would have also pointed out how in the books of First and Second Samuel, God made a covenant with King David, assuring him that one of his descendants would someday reign on his throne over a kingdom that would never end. And then maybe he asked them, didn't Jesus claim to be king of the Jews? And wasn't he born in Bethlehem because his dad, Joseph, was of the house and family of David? And could it be that he is the fulfillment of God's promise to David? Now, by this point, certainly these men's hearts were already burning. But no doubt Jesus went on to make sure that he showed them all the scriptures and all the prophets. And so maybe next he turned to First and Second Kings and showed these men how God kept that promise to David by preserving the family tree of David through thick and thin and through many close calls so that the line would be preserved and so that the great and final king might surely come into the family of David, into the family of the kings. And then perhaps he went to First and Second Chronicles with all their emphasis on the priests who ruled alongside those kings and how those priests taught the people and offered sacrifices for their sins. And then maybe he asked, doesn't that sound like what your friend Jesus came to do? It's probable that Jesus also pointed out the rebuilding of the temple and the importance of the temple in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And if he did, he would have surely asked these two men who still didn't recognize his face. Now, didn't Jesus tell people that his body was actually the temple? And that, like in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, this temple would also be rebuilt? And that in three days? Maybe you should go back and read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. You might just find that some of the things that were true of the temple were true of your friend Jesus. 
And then maybe he took them to the book of Esther and pointed out how Esther, like Samson, was a highly unlikely candidate to save God's people, but how she did so alone, just the same. Just like Jesus. And maybe he asked these two men if they'd ever thought hard about whom Job might have been thinking about in Job 9.33 when he longed for a mediator who might bring God and man together in spite of man's sins. Surely he must have reminded them of the Psalms and perhaps specifically of Psalm 22 in which the servant of God cries out, they've pierced my hands and my feet. And then maybe he asked them, who do you think that verse is about? Because as we know, David, Psalms 22's author, never actually suffered so brutally. Who is that psalm about? Maybe he showed them even in the book of Proverbs, chapter 30, that we are told that God has a son, although no one at the time of Proverbs yet knew his name. And Jesus must have asked them if they had noticed how their master seemed to know the son of God's name because their master seemed to keep saying that he was, in fact, the son of God. And maybe he pointed out how Jesus himself seemed to personalize for himself what Solomon said about God in the book of Ecclesiastes. The main point of that book is that without God, we can do nothing meaningful. And so Jesus perhaps said to them, didn't Jesus say that about himself? Didn't he say in John 15, without me, you can do nothing? You see, Jesus may have said at this point to these men, The whole Old Testament sounds an awful lot like your master, Jesus. Maybe he was something more than a prophet, mighty in word and deed. After all, maybe he was really the Messiah. And then surely he must have gone on to point out for them the love of a man for his wife in the book of Song of Solomon. And he may well have asked if these two men had ever seen anyone love like Jesus loved. And surely he would have asked if they'd ever seen anyone die like Jesus died. And if they said no, well, then he could have said, yes, you have. Because surely you've read the book of Isaiah, haven't you? Remember chapter 53? He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Doesn't that sound like your master, Jesus? And if it does, he must have said, you oughtn't be hanging your heads in grief because that same passage goes on to say that this suffering servant will prolong his days. He must have said to them, if Jesus was the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, maybe you should believe those women after all. Maybe Jesus is risen indeed. And from there, he would have gone on to the book of Jeremiah, from which he might have quoted chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do righteousness and justice to the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and this is his name by which he will be called called, the Lord our righteousness and isn't that what Matthew said was the reason for Jesus coming he could have then asked to save his people from their sins and he could have also pointed out from Lamentations how that prophet Jeremiah like Joshua and Samson and Boaz and Esther was a leader whose actions foreshadowed the actions of the Messiah and as the men remembered Jeremiah and how he wept over the city of Jerusalem and how he is known as the weeping prophet because he wept over the city of Jerusalem, perhaps it would have dawned on them how Jesus did exactly the same thing just a few days before. And maybe then he would have reminded them of the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1, where the prophet saw God sitting on a throne in heaven with the appearance of a man. 
And he could have perhaps asked these two men a simple and logical question. Who do you think that was sitting on the throne? Since we know that God the Father doesn't have a body like us. Who was that man sitting on the throne? Could it be that Ezekiel was seeing the man Jesus? And then surely he would have reminded them of Daniel as well, who prophesied in the seventh chapter of his book that one like a son of man would come with the clouds and with great glory. And he would have pointed out how Jesus applied this prophecy to himself. And he would also perhaps have reminded them of how Jesus, like Hosea, was committed to people, to loving people who were unfaithful, and how he even, like Hosea, befriended and rescued prostitutes. And he would have surely gone on to show them how the day of the Lord in the book of Joel sounds an awful lot like Jesus' own prophecies about his own second coming. Perhaps he would have also asked them if they had considered that Jesus, coming as the heir to David's throne, might be the fulfillment of the prophecy of Amos, that the Lord would someday, quote, raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches, Amos 7.11. Perhaps he would have shown them, too, that the Edomites, arraying themselves to destroy the people of God in the book of Obadiah, were simply a foretaste of how Herod the king, who was part Edomite himself, would later be a tool in Satan's hand to try and destroy the people of God once and for all by destroying their savior, the baby Jesus, back in Matthew 2. And perhaps he would have shown them that had either the Edomites or Herod succeeded, we would all be without hope and without a savior. And then he would have surely also reminded them of how Jonah, like Jesus, was as good as dead for three days and then rose again. These men would have also heard Jesus reminding them of the prophecy in Micah chapter 5 to the effect that the Messiah would be born just where their master Jesus had been born, in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And perhaps from the book of Nahum, Jesus would have pointed out the prophecy that beautiful feet will come and bring good news. And then he would have asked them if there was ever anyone who brought better news than Jesus. And maybe he also asked them if they considered the possibility that Jesus of Nazareth might have been God's answers to the plea of Habakkuk, that God would revive his work, chapter 3-2, in the midst of the dark years at the close of the Old Testament. Revive your work in the midst of the years. Don't you think that Jesus might be the answer to that, he could have said? And perhaps he pointed out in Zephaniah chapter 3 the prophecies that someday the Lord would be in the midst of his people, that he would heal the lame, that he would gather the outcasts, and that he would work in such a way that sinners would no longer be ashamed because of their rebellious deeds. And if he pointed out to them Zephaniah 3, then surely he would have pointed out to them how all of these things came exactly true in the ministry of Jesus. And maybe he asked them what they thought the prophet Haggai meant when he preached about the temple and said that in this place, Haggai 2.9, God will give peace. Could it be that the death of your master Jesus was the fulfillment of Haggai's prophecy, he may have asked? And perhaps he also reminded them that Zechariah prophesied the same thing, surely also about Jesus, when he said in Zechariah 13.1 that someday a fountain would be opened for sin and uncleanness. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and those who are cleansed beneath its flood lose all their guilty stains. And perhaps he would have brought them all the way down to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and showed them the promise that even in the midst of God's wrath and punishment, for those who trust in the Lord, quote, the Son of Righteousness will rise. 
with healing in its wings, Malachi 4.2. And perhaps he turned to them at that point and said, what if those women were right? What if Jesus really has risen? If he has, could it be that he is the one Malachi was speaking of, rising with healing in his wings? Perhaps you should listen to those ladies after all. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And after two hours of this kind of preaching, it's little wonder if these men's hearts burned within them. What a wonderful seven miles walk it must have been. How magnificent to have Jesus, who understands the Old Testament far better than I ever will, doing what I've just attempted to do, walking you from Genesis to Malachi, all the books of the Bible that had yet been printed, been written, and explaining how all those scriptures speak of him. I say it's no wonder their hearts burned. Has your heart been burning as we've thought through the Old Testament together? Does it thrill your soul to be able to open up books like First Kings and Esther and Zechariah and find Jesus there? Does it cause your whole being to rejoice when you realize that our beloved Savior didn't just come into the picture as a baby at Bethlehem, but that the whole Bible was pointing to him and preparing for him and prophesying him and foreshadowing him and preparing people for him and showing them their need of him? I hope that excites you. All of history was making way for Jesus, and all of history continues to make way for Jesus as we await his return. And so it's no surprise that all the scriptures would be filled with words about the Lord Jesus as well. It's no surprise that Ezra and Nehemiah and Moses and David should all be talking about one great subject. Jesus is the heart of the scriptures. He is the centerpiece of it all. All the scriptures from Moses and all the prophets on down to the end speak of him. And after they had seen these things, and after their hearts had burned, these disciples went about speaking of this Jesus as well. These two men, in fact, got up at that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, verse 33, so that they might with great joy testify about the Lord. And may it be so also of all the disciples in this room. May our hearts burn as we read the scriptures and think on Jesus. And may our mouths overflow to all and sundry from all sorts of passages, from all the scriptures, with glad tidings of great joy in God's Son, who is the heart of it all.